All right. You can you exhale, exhale, exhale. Okay. And then keep on breathing. All right. So in the nature of being the church, I want to apologize to a lot of you because somewhere along the way, you were sold for a lot of you, not all of you, but a lot of you were sold on an idea of what church is. Church was an institution. It was a meeting you went to. It was a place that you went to sing some, like to stand up and sing some songs you only sing on Sunday because thing outside of that's kind of awkward, right? You were, you're some, some churches you're like invited to stand and raise your hands, which you would never do anywhere else you go in the world. And you went to some churches where you ran around in circles screaming. That would never be okay in some places, right? But you were sold an idea to go to church, to go to this event, to be entertained, and possibly, hopefully, you're going to have a somebody could get up and you're like praying, oh God, let this be the Sunday morning. The pastor says something that actually impacts me and touches my life. God, would you use the man of God, the man of God to speak to me this morning because you live in this thought that maybe you can't hear him for yourself. We've been sold this idea that Sunday morning and attending on a Sunday morning is what it means to go to church. And so we've been sold this idea of what church is that really honestly has nothing to do with church. Because church is supposed to be a people. Church is not building. Church is not institution. The church equals people and when you have so when you have one person walk into a door i don't care if it's going into a restaurant i don't care if it's going into a bathroom then you have church because the person of god the child of god who is the church just walked into that room and so now you have church so they can go into the bathroom and sing songs and preach to themselves have a church service Right? Or God can speak into the moment and you got church services wherever you go. This is church. And so when we talk about then the church, the idea for God then is not just to come and sit down and sing and hear a message, check that off the list, right? Check it off the list and now go and say, I've been to church. The idea of God is something very different. He says, I want you to be the church, a people that belong to me, whom I strongly support, and I empower them to look like Jesus, to do what he did, to say what he said, and to go where he would go. And so when we're talking about this series, for those of you who are first-time guests, welcome to Vintage, right? We are in a series called Empowered. And when we talk about being the church, listen, guys, I, I, I say that, you go, okay, that's great. But I wonder if it actually sinks in. Like, I wonder if you will still talk about going to church and you will think about vintage, which is not what God thinks about. When God thinks about going to church, he thinks you mean people walking out the doors to go to people, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to go make disciples. He thinks about people in motion, doing the things of God, empowered by his spirit to go and do what Jesus did and to look like his disciples who went in the book of Acts and did the things that Jesus did. 
And so if we stopped saying, I'm going to church at Vintage, I would be completely fine with that. If you only mean going on Sunday morning to Vintage or to, Sunday, or to Wednesday night prayer or whatever it may be, if you said instead said, hey, I'm going to go be the church, I would say that's more accurate. Because when we talk about this idea of being empowered, it's just not a cool series where we're like, yeah, let's go do the stuff of Jesus. Woo, empowered. Woo, I got the power of God, right? No, I want it to be us thinking, oh, God wants to revolutionize how I live every moment, literally, of my life. Like, I hope that we listen to this series, and I don't think about, this is, I, don't, I don't just think about, oh, man, that's great, and, take, and like to pull my one-liners out so I can, like, don't walk up to me and share a one-liner with me so I, hey, so I'll listen to your message. No, I want you to say, God. Am I empowered? And if not, then God, what's the obstacle in the way of your empowerment? Because I don't, I honestly, let's be honest. Nobody likes going to church. I mean, I mean, think about the nine o'clock people. Some of them, they have to have it seven o'clock with their kids, get them ready, screaming at them. Right? So like they're in middle school or high school. Get up, we're going to church. We're going to worship Jesus. Right? Nobody wants to do that. Nobody ultimately enjoys getting up, getting dressed. You've already had three fights on the way here. You walk in the door. Da, da, da. Hey, how's it going, brother? Nobody enjoys that. That's insanity. What we like is to wake up saying, Jesus, today I want to know you. And I want to share with anyone you want me to share with, whether it's with my voice or by praying for them and seeing them healed and set free and delivered and saved so they can live for eternity with you. I want to be the church. And so we gather here. Why do we gather then, Steve? Because we believe this is a place of empowering. We come together, unified purpose in worship to connect with Jesus in community as family so that we can then kick you out in the name of Jesus. So when we talk then about being empowered, what are we empowered for? Well, there's two things that we think about. Number one, it's just everyday life, right? Like every day, like do you, who, who never sees a single person all week? Anybody here never see a single person all week? Joanne, you, you see people. My gosh, you have children. Do you not know you have children in your home? You have children, okay? You see your husband. See, yeah, you see your mom. God love her. Um, it's like you got this thing. You see people. You see people, right? All the week, you see people. And all week, you get to go and be Jesus. You get to go and express the power. So we believe that God wants to and, and desires with everything inside of his being, his dream, the dream of God is to empower his people fully to love and express the love of Jesus to people everywhere that we go, at work, going into the store, in your own home, in your neighborhood, every, every day. He says, I want to empower you every day to bring salvation, to share with the lost, right? To pray for healing, to love people who don't know that they're lovable, who just to come and just express the gifts of the Spirit, express the fruit of the Spirit. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I, I want people, 
I want you to be Christians who that when you walk in some place, the joy of the Holy Spirit goes with you and they are drawn and attracted to you. Not because you're good looking, even though you are, but they're drawn to you because the joy of Jesus is intoxicating. And they just want to be like, what's going on? I had a buddy of mine, Robert, uh, um, Robin uh, Martin. You ever heard of Milton Martin Toyota in Gainesville? You hear on the radio station all the time. He goes, you got that right. Remember that guy? Anyway, so you got Milton Martin. So Milton Martin's son is Robin Martin. And Robin Martin, man, he was just, he's just this crazy firecracker of a guy. And, and, he, and he, he told stories to my dad and I one day because he was one of the pastors of the church we went to in Gainesville. And he said, oh, man, I used to, I'd, go down, I'd go down town and downtown Atlanta all the time. I'm like, do ministry. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. We were talking about stuff that I had done and we had done together, whatever. And uh, he goes, yeah, man, I love going down. And he's like, I love, I love getting on these drug addicts. And I walk in, and I'm just so intoxicated in the Holy Spirit. They're like, dude, like, what are you on, man? He goes, oh, man, I'm on HS. It is amazing. You're HS. Tell me about HS. Oh, my gosh, dude. Because do you have any more? Dude, I got all you want. Dude, what is it? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? And this is an awesome deal, right? It is completely living, expressing the fullness of God. And he's like, dude, I want that. He says, come here. Lay his hands on him and pray for him. Is this awesome, right? And so we believe that was on an everyday basis. But we also believe that God wants to do this thing on a, on a macro level, right? Not micro, macro, big level, right? In the area of communities where entire communities are impacted by the love and the power of Jesus. We, some people call that revival. They call that renewal. But the idea is God wants to, listen, he wants to revive so he can bring life to those who don't know him, right? There's a reviving he needs to do with the church so he can bring life. So it goes to this renewal, this work of his spirit, this, this societal change that we see again and again and again and again in every generation where God does something in a people of God who then take it outside the four walls and the entire society has changed. I want to read something. I want to read that to you. In 1904. There's something called the Welsh Revival. Evan Roberts was a, was a young, young man in his 20s who came and spoke to a youth group of other like teens and 20-year-olds. And, and this revival broke out that, that affected this entire area. And it says this, whole communities were turned upside down and were radically changed from depravity to glorious goodness. The crime rate dropped off into nothing. The police force reported they had little more to do than supervise the coming and going of the people to the chapel prayer meeting while magistrates turned up at courts to discover no cases to try. The alcohol trade was decimated as people were caught up more by what happened in the local chapels than the local pubs and bars. Families experienced amazing renewal where the money-earning husband and father, the breadwinner who had wasted away the income, sowed discord now under the moving power of the Holy Spirit following the conversion to be a follower of Jesus Christ, not only provided correctly for family needs, but was now actually with the family rather than wasting his time and wages in the pubs of the village of the town. Souls were saved, individual lives were changed, and so society itself was changed. Countless numbers were converted to Christ. People who had unpaid debt paid back all the money they owed. And people who were at odds in their friendships reconciled. People's, listen, this is my, this is my favorite. This is like the dumbest thing, but my, my favorite. People's language changed so much that it was said that the animals that were used for businesses were not responding to their masters because they didn't understand any other words than cuss words. 
Right? I mean, how funny. But the donkeys wouldn't move because all they understood were cuss words, but people weren't cussing anymore because they come under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's awesome, right? Donkey's like, what are you talking about, man? It's like an interpretation of tongues or something. I don't know. It's great. So you got this whole dynamic going down. So we empowered for everyday life the church, the people of God, every door you walk into, kicked out of the, kicked out of the, 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 this building to go be the church, people in motion, right? And then when that happens, societal change god all of a sudden there's like a, like a like it's called a tipping point back in gladwell a tipping point there comes this moment we're doing this so well all of a sudden tipping point like this and all of a sudden boom and revival breaks out and societal changes occur because the people of god focus on jesus every moment of their day so let me do this through a rewind real quick, a recap of the last six weeks. I'm literally going to spend like two minutes. I'm just going to catch you up on all of these six things, kind of a recap of where we've been so we can launch again this morning. Okay, the six things you can listen to the podcast. The podcasts are better than what I'm about to share with you. But I'm just giving you like this one piece, six pieces. Number one, follow, I've already said it, followers of Jesus are to be empowered by God's spirit for the purpose of Jesus. Okay, that's number one. Followers of Jesus are to be empowered by God's spirit for the purposes of Jesus. Okay, we are to be empowered. Number two, Jesus is the source of our power. You have no power in your own strength. You're going to be a lame Christian. Try to be a, try to be a Christian in your own strength. Right? You have to lean into Jesus, be with Jesus, and expect him to be your source. Right? I said it's like if you have a power tool, like a, a drill in one hand and the battery in the other, and you try to use this, this is completely useless. But if you take that, that battery and just click it in, all of a sudden you have a great power tool worth great, great purposes, used for great purposes. All right? Number three, our, this is important. Our knowledge of Jesus, so intimate knowledge, personal knowledge, not just a knowledge about, but a personal intimate knowledge, right? Our knowledge of Jesus is the door that opens to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Our central verse for this empowerment series is Second Peter chapter 1, 2, and 3. You can read along with me on the screen. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Press pause. It says, so grace and peace, God's movement you can't earn in your life, is multiplied to you through your knowledge of Jesus. Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us or given to us everything pertaining to everything in life and godliness, again, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So I want you to see, the knowledge of Jesus multiplies God's grace and movement in our lives. The knowledge of Jesus, right, it, it gives us, it's what gives us the knowledge, that grants us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So everything we need for life, everything we need for godliness, everything we need for obedience is given to us through our knowledge of Jesus. Number four, our full empowerment is dependent on Jesus sitting on the throne of our life, not self. Scott talked about the chair. Jesus has to sit in the chair, not you. If we want to see be empowered, then Jesus has to have the rightful place on the throne of our hearts because humility is the key 
that opens this number five. Humility is the key that opens the door to the floodgates of Jesus's grace and power in our lives. So as we as we know Jesus, with the knowledge of Jesus, we, are, we, we awaken to how big and how powerful he is. We surrender ourselves in humility to him. And when we surrender, we remove, we, listen, we take self off of the chair, off of the throne. He sits on the throne and our lives become reservoirs for his grace to fill and to flow from. So humility is the key that opens the floodgates of Jesus' grace and power in our lives. Therefore, it's our primary pursuit. In life, Jesus' humility is the primary pursuit of what you're going after. It's not his power. It's his humility. What opened the door to sin entering into the world in in Genesis? Pride. What's the opposite of pride? Humility. You counter the first sin with the greatest virtue. Humility. Number six, we have a responsibility in our pursuit of Jesus to choose humility. Basically, responsibility in this. Our spiritual life is not passive. Right? We have a responsibility. We have... We have, a, we have to, to interact. We have to initiate. We have to engage. Scripture says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and then Christ will shine on you. It's Galatians. Awake, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Okay? So I've caught you up. Here we go. So let's move in this morning. What I want us to recognize this morning is that there is, when we read Scripture and we look at stories in Scripture, our goal is to find, is ultimately, yes, to find Jesus in the story, but then to find ourselves in the story, right? I read Scripture not so it can just speak to me, but so I can respond to it. The only way I can respond to the Word of God is to, is to be aware of what's going on. Like, I have to find myself, and I read the Scripture, and Jesus says, go, therefore, go make disciples of all nations. I go, where am I in that story of Jesus? Where am I in going and making disciples? He's given a mandate. Where am I with that? Right? I'm not just reading it for knowledge's sake so I can go, so I can go tell somebody. Listen, I don't learn things just so I can tell you about them. That's silly. Right? I learn. I'm shaped. I'm challenged. And then in that, I tell you my experience. Right? And so what we're talking about here is when we read through Scripture in the context of humility, the surrendering of ourselves to Jesus so that we can die to self, so we can get out of the way, so we can become a reservoir. When we read through Scripture to look at where is humility in the life of Jesus, where is surrender in the life of the disciples, and where am I in that? So basically, God, how, how good a job am I doing in the area of humility? Not so you can beat me up. You love me. You point. Listen, God points out our growth areas because he wants to mature us. Right? He points out our growth areas because he loves us. Not because he's angry. He points out our growth areas so we can be challenged to become more like him. And so in this, this morning, humility, humility has this goal to exalt Jesus, to make him first, and to not ultimately take into account what it means for us, not making it selfish, right? Always exalting Jesus and making ourselves less. Humility keeps our heart pure. It causes us to deflect 
to deflect any praise straight to Jesus because we know we have nothing of value in us apart from Jesus. So my point is simply this this morning. God's empowering. God's doing this work. God wants to challenge us. And I want to say that the only way that God's power can flow in you is for you to make yourself less, to make himself great, to love God first and surrender everything to him. Because when we surrender to him, we become a reservoir where he, he can then fill, fill us with his stuff and we can then begin to bring about change. So we find ourselves in Scripture. I'm going to look at four stories this morning. I'm not going to read all the stories. You know most of these stories. I'm going to kind of paint pictures around them. But I want you to think about the story when I tell it, or when I, when I, when I, when I talk about it. I want you to kind of put yourself in this story. The first thing I want us to see, the first story in this, this first thought that goes with the story, is this. Humility leads us to love and serve those who are not like us. Humility leads us to love and serve those who are not like us. So I don't know about you, but I prefer being around people who are like me, who have my sense of humor, right? Who have my similar convictions. The people that it's most easy for me to quote unquote love are those who think like I do, right? Who have my same convictions, right? Politically and spiritually and football team wise, right? So it's more enjoyable and more fun to be around those people, right? People who laugh at my jokes and think that I'm really funny because I don't know about you, but people don't think I'm funny. I'm like, they're weird, right? It's like, like, I want to around people who I think are like me, who think like me. And so humility then leads us to love those and serve those who are like that. In John chapter 4, you see this very familiar story. The woman at the well. Remember that story? Jesus' disciples take a little jaunt to McDonald's because they're hungry. Jesus goes down. He goes down, led by the Spirit of God, right? He goes down to the well and gets there. And there's a single solitary woman. She's going later in the day, not like all the other women, because they don't like her because she's in sin. Remember that story? It's like this guy wasn't her husband, and this guy wasn't her husband, and the one that she was living with and having sex with in that moment wasn't her husband either. They were living in sin. And so in the middle of her sin, afraid to connect other women in her, in her community, immoral, coming, to, coming here, and now there's a man here. And he's a Jew. And so he comes, and what you get to recognize, there are four invisible walls that stand between Jesus and the one. Four things that would keep Jesus from seeing her as someone that he would want to connect with, he would talk to, that he would love, and who he would serve. Number one, there's a religious wall. He is an Orthodox Jew. And she is a mixed Jew. She was someone who, whose one side of her family was Jewish, and the other, because they intermarried Jews, intermarried with non-Jews, are idol worshipers. And so they're Samaritans. They're Samaritans. And so Orthodox Jews literally saw Samaritans as just being half-breeds, okay? Second thing we see is there's a gender wall. Now, I know we don't think much about it in our culture because men and women hang out all the time. But in this day and age, men and women just did not talk. In fact, it says in verse 27 of, of, of John 4, just then his disciples came back from McDonald's. It's in the scripture in the Greek. They came back from disciples. They came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman. 
Marvel does not mean, oh, that's so cool. He's talking to a woman. He never hangs out with women. No, he marveled because this was so inappropriate. Culturally, it's, it's, an, it's overstated to say, it's not, it's not overstated to say it was irreprehensible. I mean, it's not good. It would, listen, for a man and woman to speak in public, Jewish leaders taught that it was at best a waste of time to talk to a woman, even your wife, and at worst, they say it's a diversion from the study of the Torah and could possibly lead you to hell, right? Do not use that in a conversation with your wife, man, right? <laughs> Speaking with a woman in public, even with your wife, could lead to gossip, and they said it should be avoided. And here's Jesus sitting down, going against the flow in John 4 and making his very first evangelist a half-breed, immoral woman. This is a really big deal. That Jesus is coming and speaking in this moment to a woman Third wall is a racial wall. I've already said it. Jewish first half-breeds, that's how they viewed them. The fourth one is a moral wall. She was not just a sinner. She was considered a terrible sinner. And he was without sin. Jesus, and lo- Jesus loved and served this woman. Why? Because the Father led him there. He surrendered himself to the Father, and the Father said, go and speak to this woman. His humility opened this door. Humility makes us real. Listen, humility causes each of us to realize that everyone is created in the image of God. Whether they are gay or they are straight, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, whether they are Christians or non-Christians, they are all created in the image of God and Jesus loves them with every single bit and fabric of his being. Humility led him to define people not by anything other than the fact that they were created in God's image and worthy of being loved in the best of his energies and his time given to serve and to love them. How are we doing at that? Like, where are we? Remember, where are we in that story? Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? There's a man all bloodied, and Jesus makes as the hero of the story an immoral half-breed, the Good Samaritan. He's making a point. Where are you in the story? Where are you? It's loving and serving specifically those who are not like you, with the best of yourself. Listen, if you have you ever led somebody to Christ who thinks that you hate them and that God hates them? You will never lead a single person to Jesus if they think that your God hates them and that you hate them. The only people, the only way someone's going to come to Christ through the ministry of Jesus through you is that they think that you love them with every fabric of your being because they are created in the image of God like you. Second thing, humility leads us past the fear of man or fear in general. This is crazy, guys. Don't you hear this? 
If you struggle with fear, humility is what leads us past fear. In John chapter 5, Jesus walks up to a lame man sitting at the the pool of Bethesda. This is where people would sit. And remember the story, says, and Jesus walks up to him and says, what's going on? He says, I'm, I'm lame, have been from birth. Everybody knows it, right? I sit here every day. People drag me out here and pick me up and take me home every day. And just waiting for the waters to be, for the angels to stir the water. But I, whenever the waters are stirred, I can't get in there because I'm lame. And so I've never been healed. And Jesus says, hey, take up your mat. I heal you in my name. He didn't say that, right? But I, you're healed. You're healed. I heal you in Jesus' name. That's my name, right? No, no, I heal you. You're healed in Jesus' name. You're healed. Get up, take your mat and go. And the guy, I don't know what happened. There must have been something happened in his body to know whether it was like energy went through his body. But like I heard people say when the guy healed, it was like fire going through my bones. Or if his legs literally went, and just kind of went, he's like, like a robot. I have no idea what happened. But whatever it was, he knew he was healed. And he stood up, and then Jesus ran off. And the guy didn't know it's a Jesus. And he goes off, I've been healed, I've been healed. And he's like, oh, what's happening? Who? And the Pharisees are going, who healed him on the Sabbath? This is against our law. Jesus comes back to the man and says, hey, now that you've been healed, I love this, don't sin anymore. Don't sin anymore. Stop living opposed to the will of the Father. And then he goes, oh, you're the guy who healed me. His name's Jesus. And so it picks up in verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, right? These Pharisees, they're, they're honored and they're feared. And they were feared. And Jesus says in verse 17, whatever, my father is working until now, and I am working. Basically, you say, well, I see, I see father working today, healing those whom he loves. So I will do what he does, and I don't really give a rip what you think. That's what he's saying. So you're going to kill me? Well, watch what happens, right? You're going to beat me? Then so be it. I don't fear, man, because I only have myself surrendered in humility fully to Yahweh God who is with me. So 1 John 4, 4, little children, you who are from God have overcome them, right? For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He lives in that. I've so emptied myself. I've so humbled myself and surrendered myself before God. And I know him so fully that I don't live in fear about tomorrow. I don't live in fear of finances. I don't, I think fear doesn't register ultimately for me. I've so humbled myself in the fullness of God. This is beautiful. Andrew Murray says, I feel deeply that we have very little conception of what the church suffers from the lack of his or her divine humility, the nothingness that makes room for God to prove his power. So listen, I think, I'll leave it up there. I don't think we have any idea what's actually lacking in our lives because we're not walking in the fullness of humility. The fullness of humility leads us to this complete, as he says right here, it's complete nothingness, an empty reservoir that makes room for God's power to prove his power through. Like we have no idea. But his power flows through those who are fully surrendered. And they don't live in fear because they know God is Lord. Where do we find ourselves in that story? Where do we fit? 
Where is God in the area? Where's our humility that leads to our fearlessness because we see the fullness of God and his power moving in us, right? We're aware of the world. I see that in Acts when the disciples came back after being persecuted. And they say the world's coming against us. The world's crashing in against us. But give us power to proclaim even more strong in the word of God. We're surrendered to you. Not our will, but your will be done. Where do you find ourselves in this story? The third thing we see, humility exalts Jesus and lowers self. I've already said it basically. Humility exalts Jesus and lowers self. And acts to, how, where are we in that? How good a job are we? Listen, do you spend more time thinking about and talking about yourself or more time talking about Jesus and meeting the needs of others? Where do we find ourselves in the story? Where are we exalting others who are in need and lowering ourselves? And you think, I love Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa says, she's like, I don't, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't called to the poor. I was called to follow Jesus and he led me to the poor. And in her poverty, she, listen, we went to one home and they said, and this is just, I'm not saying do this. I'm just saying this is what she did. She came into this home for the, for the dying, which we visited in Bangalore, India and in Madras, India. And we got this home for the dying. And I remember that she said when she came here, whatever year it was like in the fifties, she said she came in and there was hot water, but because the other, this is just her thing, right? Just hear my heart in this. Because others did not have, she got rid of the hot water so that she could identify with those living in poverty and not be better than. Like, I'm not, and I said back to the nuns, like, are you sure that was the best idea, right? But there's such a desire to identify and to give ourselves and the best of ourselves so we can identify with those who are in need and need to be served and loved. We lower ourselves. We exalt Jesus and lower self. And that's what we see here in chapter 3. Peter and John come in. They walk by the gate. Beautiful. There's the guy who's been lame since birth. They're like, hey, like give me some money. Give me some money. And they say, silver and gold we do not have. But what we do have... We give to you in the name of Jesus. Take up your mat and walk. And again, something happened physically. It's like, right? And all of a sudden, I'm free. And then all of a sudden, like he's singing the song, right? I could just see them like, my chains are broken. I've been set free, whatever it is, right? It's like a nice breakout musical like they do in all these great movies, right? So it's like a Disney movie. And so musical's happening, right? And all of a sudden, everybody goes, and they go, zoom. And they focus right in on Peter and John. And they come running over. Because they think that they're gods in flesh. In verse 12, Peter deflects and then he exalts in verse 16. He says, individual, whoa, 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 whoa. That's what he did. Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? It says, though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. Deflection, right? Verse 16, in his name, Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Deflect and exalt. Take eyes off of me and focus them like we are on Jesus. Like, I don't know about you, but when I do something that I think I deserve a response from and someone devalues me, which is the language I would use by not talking about how great I was, like I give them a gift. They don't say thank you. I'm like, oh, my gosh, who are they? I mean, they need to tell me how awesome I am for giving them that gift. Right. Or in our lives, we we like I've been in situations where I have. 
I've talked great about somebody else. They didn't return the favor. So, so, so something that I wanted went to them because I was just honest, right? I was loving and I'm sitting there wrestling. Well, if I just done what they did and kept my mouth shut, I probably would have gotten the blessing rather than going, thank you, Jesus, because they needed it. And I thank you that I have everything I need pertaining to life and godliness because I know you and that's enough. Is knowing Jesus enough? Is it? Like, where do you find yourself in the story? Next three, even like, yeah, praise Jesus, but yes, give me a microphone and give me a higher stage. That's what I find in most churches. I mean, people literally coming in on like, I mean, I've been places, man, people like come in like on high wire, coming in to like, like flying into the stage. I mean, seriously, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Put a cross on it or something. I mean, that sounds kind of cheesy, but exalt Jesus. Deflect glory. Exalt him. Number four, humility obeys radically. Humility obeys radically. In Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, there's a familiar story. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. This is a story. I'll just read verse 26 to kind of set the stage for us. This is now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise, go toward the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And it says, and Philip went. When he got there, there was a chariot coming by the Ethiopian eunuch in it, right? And he's reading from the, he's reading from the scrolls of Isaiah. And so Philip comes up. Hey, running beside the chariot. What you reading? Reading Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? How could I? I don't have anybody to tell me what's going on. He says, well, invite me up and I'll tell you. So invites him up to the chariot, right? And he starts telling about Isaiah, which then leads to him sharing about the, the gospel of Jesus. And the man gives his life to Christ. He says, and looks at Philip, what's keeping me from being baptized? And he looked over and there's a puddle of water. And listen, guys, they go over. I don't know if he picked up a cup, used his hands and poured it. I don't know if he rolled around in the mud puddle. I have no idea what was happening. But something happened in the moment where he was baptized. You recognize Philip didn't say, well, you've got to be fully immersed to become a Christian. He did not say that. All he's looking for is some water. It's not the function of how we do it. It's the actual obedience to the message, right, of a baptism. And so he comes over and water somehow gets on his body. And he's baptized and he goes away. And the scripture has that crazy story. It says, and all of a sudden, Philip was in a different town. He was like translated. I have, it was like, beam me up, Scotty. Another town. I have no idea how that happened. Don't ask me. I don't know. I just think it's a cool story to tell, right? So when I'm with youth, I'm like, you ever heard that story of translation, <laughs> right? Oh, my gosh, tell me. You know what? So anyway, but this whole thing going on. And I don't want you to miss verse 26. That's a really cool story. But don't miss this. Number one, God spoke to an, th- through an angel, and he says, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There's a period that says, this is a desert place. So basically God says, I want you to get up, and I want you to go to nothing. Because that's what's in a desert, isn't it? If I walk into a desert, there are, in my mind, like there's cactuses. That's all, that's all that's there, right? I know there's more than that, right? There's sand. But there's nothing going on in the desert. So the writer, so, so Luke is writing and saying, so in this moment, God speaks to the angel says, I want you to get up. I want you to go to nothing, right? And so, so I put myself in the story. I'm like, what would I do if I were Philip? I go, oh, there's nothing there. Whew. What did I eat last night? 
man, that cannot be Jesus because he's not going to tell me to go to nothing. There's all, there's like, I, I could go over here into the temple. I could go over here to the well. I could even go over here. There's nothing out there. God, I, really, I must have, I need, to, I, need to, I need to call Scott. I need to call Randall. Randall, listen, God said this. Do you think I'm crazy? Yes, right? No, it's like, whatever it is, right? There's this, don't you do that? Here's the story. God says to do something crazy, and you start arguing with him. Philip gets up and says, oh, that makes complete sense. If Jesus said it, I'll do it. He doesn't argue. I'll be honest with you. The world needs a lot more radical obedience getting it wrong than no radicalness at all in doing nothing. Be radically obedient and realize maybe you missed it. And then you laugh with Jesus because he thinks it's funny. And then you say, he says, but, but since you were obedient there in that, then I know I can trust you to do even more radical things. God's looking for radical obedience and humility of surrender to God, saying, not my will, but your will, not what I think is right, but what you think is right, not what makes sense, but whatever you think makes sense, God, I will do that. That's the fruit of humility. Where are you in that story? Humility is to be our primary pursuit, and it's birthed out of our knowledge of Jesus. When you know him, you see him in his fullness, then humility is birth. And we know humility is alive and well when we love and serve those who are not like us, when we, the fear of man is conquered, when we exalt Jesus situations and we lower self and we celebrate the lowering of self like jesus when he wraps the towel around him and washes his disciples stinky nasty gross feet it says as i have done for you do unto others and he wasn't literally talking about washing feet what he was literally talking about was find the greatest need of service that costs the most and you lower yourself to do it it's in a seminary class and the question for one of our days was they said this So if that was an example, what does it mean in your life to wash someone's feet? What does it mean? Like, what is this great sacrifice and cost to you to do something of great sacrifice to serve someone else who does not ultimately deserve it, but quote unquote in your mind is lower than you? We exalt Jesus and lower self. And number four, we start obeying radically. It's going to look a lot like the things that Jesus and his disciples did. Praying for people, loving on people, taking, meeting people's needs, whatever it may be. And I wonder for ourselves, if we put ourselves into the story, how good a job are we doing? Not in performance, trying to earn something, Right? Like, we can start trying to do all this and just fail miserably because we're trying to do it in our own strength. I mean, like, birthed out of the knowledge of Jesus, you recognize that God loves all people and wants to empower you. And you all of a sudden find yourself naturally wanting to meet the needs of others. Like Christine Kane said last week, I don't get compassion fatigue because Jesus never has compassion fatigue. He's always wanting to meet and to serve, meet the needs and serve others. Where are we in humility? 
I'll tell you something. We can pray for revival until we're blue in the face. But it's not until we begin to be honest about where we fit into Jesus' story in the area of humility and engaging that as our primary pursuit and the primary virtue that we go after. Until we do that, we will not see the societal change. Because there comes a tipping point of people who are serving, who are humbling themselves, who are dying to self, who are making much of Jesus. There comes a tipping point. We do this, and all of a sudden, there's just this breakthrough moment. The tide, the dam is broken, and God's grace and power, God opposes the proud, but he pours out grace like an like a, like Isaiah says, like a river pent up and driven by the breath of the Lord. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. And I want it to be through you. Like, to be honest with you, it'd be really, really cool if on Sunday morning you, like, came running into, like, as you, the church, came running into this building with other church people, other church, right? And the people, and you were like, oh, my gosh, you got to believe what happened. I'm like, what, 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 what else? What else? I fell in love with the neighbor I've always hated, <laughs> Right? And I, I just went over and told them this, I asked forgiveness, and I just, I just brought them a meal, and I just loved on them. And they told me what was going on with their, with their daughter who lives in, in, in Tucson, Arizona. I'm making this all up, right? Tucson. And, and then she's just weeping, and I'm weeping. And then she said, and I've turned my back on God. And I just said, don't do that. Let me pray for you. And we prayed in the moment for her. We prayed for salvation. We prayed, and then we prayed for her daughter. And Steve, I just wept. And I wept and I wept for her daughter in Tucson. And the next day, her daughter called and just said, Mom, I'm sorry. I can't come home yet, but I'm just something stirring. I want you to know I love you. It's like, oh, that'd be so good. That's a movement of God. It's like and all of a sudden, these stories begin to happen and begin to happen and begin to happen. And all of a sudden, revival breaks out because we recognize God's doing this. The pent-up breath of the Lord driving this river of his grace. That's what I want. We want to see people changed through our lives. We want to see our community. I'll be honest with you. I am tired, tired of people talking about the end of the world. I want people to start talking about Jesus and what he's doing now. Because we can focus all day long on preparing for the end. We can focus all day on Jesus and bring people into salvation before the end. Let's pray.